Hey everyone, welcome back to Staying Connected. This is Katie, your host, and today I have Meg with me who's going to tell her story with vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, or VEDS. Thank you, Meg, for for doing this podcast. (laughs) Thank you, Katie, for having me. I am so excited to hear more about your story because um, as I was telling you before we started recording, I feel like I talk to you all the time, but I don't think we've ever really talked thoroughly about your story. So I'm excited for you to share it. Yeah, it's an, it's interesting. All of us have our, our different journeys. So you know, I'm happy to be here and share share the story. So when were you diagnosed with VEDS? So I was diagnosed in 2016, um, which was about nine years after I had my first event, which was an aneurysm. I was 27 years old, I was in nursing school, and I had um, a maxillary artery aneurysm, which was located right inside a salivary gland. Um, So um, I could probably get into that more later, but basically I had that aneurysm, was told the day after I had that repaired that I had another aneurysm, and for nine years basically went on suspecting that there was something else going on. And by 2016, there was enough going on. And I had, you know, I work in healthcare as a registered nurse and I had enough people kind of around me um, to, I don't know, just, I just knew that there was something else going on here. Mm -hmm. And um, so I had actually had enough symptoms come up and, you know, in the days of the internet and Dr. Google, I had found, well, and I also, you know, I did look up, you know, medical literature and had pretty much figured out that it was VEDS, Mm -hmm. but it was um, just, uh, you know, a physician that I worked with um, noticed that I had slightly blue sclera. So he was like, do you break your bones easily? And I said, no, I don't. But I actually pulled up my pant leg and I had just had a vein rupture in my calf. And I'm like, no, but I have this. Do you know anything about this? And he's like, no, I only know about bones. Um, but um, so, you know, he, he was basically thinking that I might have osteo. Uh, you said it earlier. Osteogenesis imperfecta. Right. Um, which I don't have, but it's, it's related. It's, it's kind of similar. So, um but at that point, I was like, I need to come to the, I need to get to the bottom of this. And so I was doing my online research and found a poster that um, was of Kathy Bowen's son. And it, one of the symptoms in that poster was sleeping with your eyes open. And at that point, my daughter was five mm-hmm. and she slept with her eyes open. And so putting, and she really didn't have anything else. She had, um, you know, she, I had her full term and she did have a little hernia in her belly button when she was born, Mm -hmm. Um, but it had resolved by by the time she was two, but it was the sleeping with the eyes open and all these other things and me that I was like, this has got to be it. And so I, um, I went to her pediatrician who is also a colleague through work and, I kind of explained, you know, what what my justification was. And she kind of was like, you know what? I remember this in med school. And she's like, I don't think that you have it, but I understand where you're coming from. So I'll give you the referral to geneticist. Nice. So um, 
so I went to saw the geneticist and it was almost the same story. Like she's like, Oh yeah, no, I don't think you have this. You don't have the look, you don't you know, you didn't have a rupture. Um so but I you understand had so had an aneurysm. I'll, but I'd had an aneurysm and I had another one. Okay. And I was thinking to myself, well I hadn't didn't rupture because I had intervention. Mm-hmm. You know, so but um but anyway, so we we um we got the test done and so my test came back positive and um it was like validation, you know, it was finally, you know, there was a sense of relief to finally have an answer, you know, after nine years of knowing something was wrong. You know, people don't have aneurysms at twenty seven. Yeah. And I you know, it was just kind of sad to feel good about this this uh, this news. <laughs> but you know, working in healthcare, you think that you have a certain amount of like pure respect with clinicians to say, "Hey, I know there's something else going on." And literally, I had a primary care doctor tell me, "Well, some people just have aneurysms," and like I thought about writing her a letter to say, you know. Some people have connective tissue disorders and they have aneurysms, you know? <laughs> so it was, you know, I, it was very dismissive. Um, yeah. And I honestly kind of thought I was um, getting away without having that dismissive um, behavior from other, from physicians just because I work in healthcare and I work with these people. They're my colleagues. So, and really it was just a handful. I think a lot of people just, I, I really don't meet the full criteria for testing if you look at the literature. Yeah. Um, so, and my geneticist that, that did the, the did the, dino, the diagnosis. I mean, she says, you know, you've changed how I practice and how I I screen my patients for this. And she actually wrote a case case study in that little abstract oh, on my awesome. case. So, um, so that was how I got diagnosed. <laughs> so how did that? So you said you felt you felt validated. Did your daughter get tested at the same time? Yeah, yeah. So she got tested, and at that point we knew what what gene we were looking at. And so her test didn't take as long to come back. It was about a week, and her test was positive. How did that feel? Um, that was, like, the worst day of my life, um, the worst heartbreak. Was she five? She was five, yeah. Um, so with me, you know, I had kind of had a shift in perspective back in 2007 when I had the first aneurysm, which was kind of my near death experience, Mm -hmm. like life changing experience. And so I had already, I think, gone through a lot of the processing of this, you know, life shortening. Yeah idea um but having your child have that diagnosis and it was just devastating and then the guilt associated with that is crazy (laughs) but so that's definitely something i i live with and struggle with but at the same time um i feel like it makes me a better mom to them. <laughs> I don't know. Is that? So you have, know. you said then, so you have another, 
another child yes, too? Yes, I do. So after unsuccessfully trying to have a baby, <laughs> we stopped trying to have a baby as soon as I got my diagnosis. And just like that, I got pregnant with my son, Isaac, our son, <laughs> Isaac. So that's, I hear that's what happens. You know, once you stop trying it, it works. But then, <laughs> um, but then you know, we tested him in the NICU and his test came back positive as well. So there's like a double whammy with the guilt. <sighs> um, uh, but that's just, that's our lives. So, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is a double whammy. That's like, yeah. Especially right after you found out. Yeah. That first year, 2016 was really, really hard because it was like my diagnosis, like in January, Zoe's mm -hmm. diagnosis a week later. And then two weeks later, literally I find out I'm pregnant and was like, Gosh. you've got to be kidding me, <laughs> you know? So it was like joy because we had been trying for so long and then devastating because we both have this. And then I'm going through this high risk pregnancy. Whereas I had gone full, you know, full term with my first pregnancy. And even though I'd had an aneurysm and I had a known other aneurysm, it w I was high risk, but it was for different reasons, really. Mm -hmm. You know, so for, with Zoe, I just had a scheduled C-section at 39 weeks um, because they didn't want me pushing because of the history of aneurysms. Mm -hmm. um, but then the second time around, it was, oh, her uterus could rupture and that's a problem. And she's already gone full term. So that uterus might not be in the best of shape. And um, so there was a lot of planning and figuring out how we were going to get through that pregnancy. So, yeah. And how did that pregnancy go? It went well. Um, but I ended up having a scheduled, I mean, it was actually pretty great because I, I, you know, I'm a nurse, and so I was got very involved in my care. And, you know, Dr. Peter Byers was on, like, my standby email asking questions, and he was extremely helpful and supportive and communicated with my um, high-risk um, doctors. Yeah. Um, it was, I mean, I was initially going to deliver at the hospital that I worked with, and then, it, you know, after review with their OB department. They, they agreed that I should be transferred to an academic center. Mm -hmm. So, so I had, actually, I went from one, that's my hospital where I worked to another hospital, then to an academic center. Um, so, and at that point it was actually nice because they included me in my care plan. And so I got to participate in a multidisciplinary case review of my own case. And oh, that's awesome. Yeah, educate the residents on VEDS and um, and my story, how I was diagnosed. And um, so I was actually the one that recommended that I have a cesarean hysterectomy um, because I, I knew at some point that I would need a, a hysterectomy. And I figured, well, you're there. We'll kill two birds with one stone, and we don't have to mess with the tubal ligation and, um, and me having to come back at some point later to have a hysterectomy. So they just so, did a hysterectomy when they came in for Isaac. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty cool. It was from a surgical standpoint, it was a little intense. Um, <laughs> so we had, I think a total of 18 people in the delivery room. Wow. Cause it was not just a delivery C-section. It was 
um, hysterectomy. So I had urology there. I had OB, um, high risk OB, perinatology, neonatology, because it was, we had us, we had him early basically for my sake. So we waited till 34 weeks. So he was six weeks early. Mm-hmm. So we knew he was going to go straight to the NICU and, um, and he did really well. He was on oxygen less than I think 12 hours. Wow. And so, and, and he was discharged after a week because really I was just feeding him. Mm-hmm. Um, and really the only complication was that when they did get to the, to the uterus, they could, they said that they could see the lining of his hair through the lining of the uterus Whoa. and that my uterus was really, really thin. And she had said that my, when she basically cut through the uterus, she said it was like cutting through warm butter. So that's, scary. and then, yeah, yeah, that's scary. Um, and she said that my, well, not said, but my, as they didn't do the usual incision where they just, they basically cut up from, up from my pubic bone to my belly button and my incision tore, like as they were cutting it tore up. So I kind of have a little, um, like I've got the regular scar from my previous C-section and then an opposite scar going up and then tore. So I've got a little J on my belly. Actually, not a little. It's, it's a big J because of the tear. I would have had a T, but I ended up with a J. Huh. Um, but really, those were the only complications. Uh-huh. So, yeah. So yeah. I've got a couple questions for you. First, I want to take you back to 2007 because you said that you had a like close call with death in 2007. Right. Yeah. Tell me about that. So, um, so it's, it's kind of silly, but it all started out with eating candy in the middle of the night. So I, um, would get these sweet cravings and I ate a piece of hard candy this, the night before my symptoms started. And so I woke up and I had this really bad jaw pain. And I thought, well, I should really stop eating hard candy at night or probably just stop eating candy in the middle of the night (laughs) because, my jaw was, I don't know, it was like the weirdest thing. And I went to work um, that day and my boss sent me home or sent me to the doctor. And my doctor said, well, yeah, that's weird, but you probably just have a clogged salivary gland. So eat some lemons and maybe like the extra saliva will help unclog this duct. Apparently this was a common thing. So he said, put a warm compress on your on your face where it's sore and maybe that'll loosen everything up, and, and he sent me home. Mm-hmm. So I went home that night, put a warm compress on my face, watched a movie, and was eating lemons like crazy. <laughs> and it was super painful every time I ate this lemon. And I realized after I got up from watching the movie that my face was completely swollen, where there was no definition between my my jawline and I was in a lot of pain, and so I went to the emergency room because mm-hmm. I knew there was not right. And so they sent me back to have a CT scan, and they said, well, you have an infection in your salivary gland, and incidentally have a little aneurysm there too. And I was like, that's weird. So I knew exactly what an aneurysm was because I was in my cardiology lecture in nursing school, and my great aunt had an abdominal aortic aneurysm and my grandmother had passed away from a hemorrhagic stroke. So I knew exactly what they were and thought it was pretty bizarre that I was having one or that I had one identified. 
um, when I was 27 years old. And so they sent me home on antibiotics and a prescription for, with, for Vicodin. Even though I didn't feel sick, I didn't feel like I had an infection. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was weird. And kind of long story short, a week went by. I had gone back to my primary doctor who thought it was really bizarre to you that I had an aneurysm there. Um, and an ENT doctor who didn't even realize that I had had an aneurysm and I had to explain to him that I had an aneurysm there. And he said, well, we'll just take finish the antibiotics for the infection and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. So within five days or seven days, um, I had take finished the antibiotics and ironically I had gone through the, the OR rotation in nursing school on the following Thursday. So the initial symptoms started on a Friday mm-hmm. by the next Thursday I had was in a ton of pain still, but still trying to, you know, you don't miss school and nursing school. You don't miss your rotations. It's <laughs> a big deal. So I was in the OR watching a vascular sur- surgery happen. And I was able to talk to that vascular surgeon later and said, Hey, this is totally off my nursing school thing, but I've got an aneurysm that was diagnosed last week. It's really painful. What do you think I should do? And he's like, well, you should see a vascular surgeon. And I'd love to see you <laughs> if you, and he gave me his information. I said, okay, great. So let me get through this day and I'll call you. Mm-hmm. And so the next day I had run out of Vicodin, the antibiotics were done and I went to work and my boss, who was a nurse, said, you know, you do not look good. You really need to call your doctor again and let him know what's going on. And at that point, I mean, I could, that night before, I could hear the swooshing. And when I laid on that side of, like, blood flow, mm-hmm. um, I had a little bit of bruising going d- down my neck behind my ear. And if I was wearing an earring, you could, it was pulsating. You could, you could see my, my earring move to my heartbeat. And... You know, it was like very clear what was going on. But it's gonna be really creepy. It was really creepy, and um, so I said I explained all that to this, this ENT doctor that was like, "Yeah, well, just finish your antibiotics," and he got freaked out. I was like, "Okay, you need to go to the emergency room. Where you need to go to Saddleback right now. We're gonna get another CT scan." So we, I went to that hospital, got a CT scan, and the aneurysm had tripled in size. So and that's like less than a week. Within less than a week, yeah. Wow. And so, at that particular hospital, they did not do any type of interventions for aneurysms. And so, um, it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. I had run out of pain medication, but I knew pretty much what I was looking at as far as the urgency. And I was in nursing school and learning all these things, so I filled out my advanced directive while I was like in the middle of figuring, like, trying to coordinate my care and where, where to go and during rush hour in Southern California. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the doctor didn't think I needed an ambulance. And so my, my um, boyfriend at the time basically um, drove me to the, cl- the closest. We actually had to like pull up navigation to figure out which hospital would be closest to go to in, in rush hour. And the nurses told him, well, if it ruptures, you're going to want to put pressure on her neck. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I, I knew what that meant. I was like, that's, I, you know, I was in so much pain. But looking back now, I'm like, this is like like a comedy like of errors of things. that Like as a professional, I would never tell a patient um, 
But anyways, so this happened and I go to the emergency room. I'm admitted right away and um, I had interventional radiology, um, coiled aneurysm. I think I was in surgery for like three hours or something like that. It was a long time. Mm-hmm. And they told me that it was so big that they had to use 15 feet of coils, something to that effect. So I've got like this huge ball of platinum in my head. <laughs> so it's probably worth a lot of money if, you know, <laughs> it's probably the most expensive thing I have. <laughs> and so with me forever. So literally I'll take it to the grave. <laughs> so, um, so that was that surgery. And then the next, I spent the night in ICU and the next morning they were discharging me and they said, Hey, you've got another aneurysm. Um, in your chest right off your aortic arch. So that was when this whole journey began, even, wow. even though I didn't know that I had beds for another almost 10 years. So. How did all of that feel? Like, I mean, you don't know you have beds. You're 27 years old. Um, well, I was catapulted into, I think, a different phase of life. Um, you know, you or 27, you have the rest of your life ahead of you. You know, I was starting a new career. Um, I got engaged like the, the only a few months after that, actually. Mm-hmm. So, but it it changed my perspective on how I lived my life and how I viewed life, and to really not sweat the small stuff because at any moment, you know, you could you could it could be over. Um, and I, it totally changed my outlook on how I cared for patients because I was a patient and I, a lot of things went wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it changed me as a nurse because I could empathize like, with what scary, horrible experiences happen, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that carried into your, into your career. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm guessing that your VEDS diagnosis also carried into your career once you finally got an answer. Right. Yeah. No, because then it's, you know, you learn as a patient to advocate for yourself. And then as a nurse, you advocate for your patients. Um, Because it's, I don't know, it's just part of what nurses do. So then you throw in the component of a rare disease Mm-hmm. And it like quadruples that ag- advocacy um, role. And then if you are a parent of a child with a rare disorder, it's, you know, even it's even more so. So, um, so yeah, as a patient parent nurse, it's, that's kind of my thing is like, I have many different hats mm-hmm. and I think my, my biggest hat in, in all of this for vets is being a, a patient advocate for others, myself and my kids. Mm-hmm. So how is it, how has it been being a parent with feds to children with feds? It's interesting. <laughs> it's, <laughs> I think it's, you know, we have a lot of, um, a lot of people on our online support groups and, um, it's that's a huge. It's that was a huge, huge um, resource, 
um, as you know, as you get the diagnosis. And I love hearing from other parents and I've sought out a lot of advice as we've gone through this, but I do find that there, it's a little different um, with moms that have VEDs that have kids with VEDs than with moms that don't have VEDs that have kids with VEDs. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a hard thing to explain, but I kind of feel like, and I think it's also different if you grew up not knowing that you had beds because so I grew up pretty much having a regular childhood mm-hmm. and that's what I want for my kids as much as possible. So I do feel like I'm a little more lenient with how I'm raising my kids with beds um, because I also have this sense of um, life could be short for me, for me personally. Mm-hmm. And so I want, to have like the highest quality and I don't want my kids to miss out on certain things. So it is a very unique balance between being safe, being conservative and having a a full um, life and fulfilling childhood Mm -hmm. and not restricting their childhood. Um, So I don't, I don't know. And it's probably just, you know, the hype of, like Facebook, where it's, you know, there's a lot of scary things on the internet. And I think there's, if you, if you really are just reading things, the con and you can read different things into the context. And um, just, I think that there's not a cookie cutter way to manage this disease for everybody. And that there's, that it's really dependent on the individual family and just the individual's manifestations. So, so do you know um, what type of mutation you have? Yes, I have a partial null mutation. A partial null? Yeah. <laughs> what is that? So, <laughs> I was going to say, please don't ask me to explain that, but <laughs> that's what I've been told. And even though I'm in healthcare and I'm a nurse, I'm like, I still feel like I need like a Cliff Notes version of like Genetics 101 to understand how all that works. Mm -hmm. But basically my understanding is that part of the collagen three that I make is defective. And then I also don't make enough of it, but then I do make some that is good. So that is my understanding. (laughs) (laughs) So I know it's not as severe as it could be. um, And that some of my collagen isn't perfect. And then some of it, I'm just, short on so but i've been told that's maybe why i didn't present with a lot of the other um like characteristics Hmm. so i don't know so how old are your kids now so my daughter is my daughter's always going to be 10 and in a couple months and then isaac is three and does Zoe, no. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She's known since the beginning, since she got diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm very matter-of-fact with her about everything. And she, at this point, is probably her own biggest self-advocate. Um, well, aside from me. She's my backup. <laughs> but she's <laughs> she definitely um, is aware of of how her body works. And I probably was going to end up being this type of parent anyway, just as a nurse. Um, But 
explaining collagen. And it's funny because, you know, she's very athletic and, um, you know, so we kind of did pull back on letting her be in sports that she wanted to be in. Like she wanted to be in soccer. She wanted to be in softball. And so we haven't had her do that. We, and so we, we started this Girl Scout troop. And mm. it's funny, like we've had events supporting her on like Reds for Vets Day. And so we've got this these 14 girls that know all about vascular ehlers down oh, syndrome awesome. and can like tell it to everybody. And it's the, <laughs> it's the cutest thing having these like nine-year-old girls explain what it is. Oh my gosh. Um, and she's got a pretty good head on her shoulders, I think with the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because um, we've kind of treated it as a, Hey, as a matter of fact, you have this thing and this is what your body could do. And, we don't kind of we don't really treat it like it's a tragic kind of thing, even though for us it is as parents. Mm-hmm. Um, we just try to keep it as a matter of fact kind of a thing. And so, how about Isaac? He's three. So he he's a little different because boys are so different than girls, <laughs> and they're wild and crazy. And I do think that out of the two kids, he is more my. Um, my tr- my troublemaker in the vids arena. <laughs> um, so at this point, I think with his, you know, when he was born, I knew that he had it. Like you didn't need to test him for me to know. You could just mm-hmm. tell he was blown veins like crazy. Um, finally, I just I said stop poking him. He doesn't need fluids. He doesn't need an IV. Um, and um, he just he just seems to be more beds like (laughs) um but um he's had he had a hernia um he's had inguinal hernia surgery so in his groin Mm -hmm. he had um he's had rsv and i think that like a respiratory infection Mm -hmm. where he was in the hospital for a week and i'm thinking maybe that was because he was premature and his lungs aren't as up to par with other kids or at least the other kids so um he's been in the hospital for a high infection and not that that's beds related but it just it just seems like he gets hit harder with respiratory disease or just in general infections mm-hmm. and then um you know and he's just more active and we have i have two older stepsons so total in the house we have a 10-year-old, a 9-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 3-year-old. So oh three God. boys and one girl. So they're crazy um, <laughs> just by nature. <laughs> and they all know, you know, especially the boys are, you know, they everyone tries to be pretty cautious with um, the two Veds kids, yeah. <laughs> especially with, with the toddler. And they, you know, they play around. And, you know, Isaac hit his head on a dresser and on the corner of the dresser. So he had this indention in his head. It took oh. three hours to stop bleeding. Oh, my um, gosh. You know, so we, you know, go to the mer- or not emergency room, but urgent care and have it stapled, you know, because it wouldn't <laughs> bl- stop bleeding. Um, and the kid bruises way more than Zoe did. But I think it's just because he's more active. Yeah. Um. But his teachers all know, um, so I kind of feel like I do a little in-service with every teacher every year. Um, we've got the medical alert bracelets. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody's pretty much aware, and I think everyone just calls me if they have any concern 
or question or you know if he literally bumps his head i know i'm on speed dial at the schools so they just call and and you know i kind of do my triage mom triage nurse triage and you know luckily that's really we haven't really had to deal with any major emergencies with the kids that's so good yeah yeah well is there anything else that you wanted to tell the listeners um well i would love to share where i'm at now with my job so just with our and i'm ours is you and me like we've had so much volunteer activity you Mm -hmm. definitely weigh more than me but um it was so awesome to meet you um this this last spring it's so um and along with like our other you know kind of have this a crew of um, <laughs> of other beds advocates and, and volunteers, but um, just in getting out there and going to different conferences, I have been able to um, be way more involved and get involved with the Marfan Foundation Vets Division, um, and this is just one of those crazy things where in so my background in nursing for the last 10 years, I have been an informatics nurse, which is basically what um, kind of the, the liaison between IT people that work in the electronic health record and the clinicians that work um, with the electronic health record. Mm-hmm. So I have been doing this at um, the hospital where I'm at now for many years and have gotten to know a lot of the department chairs as far as the physicians go and so in the spring when we met i was doing quality um like physician quality data reporting Mm -hmm. and ended up working for one of the kind of one of the head shows at the hospital and just in passing i explained to him that i have this condition and that i've been going to all these different um conferences and meeting different people and asking you know how does how does a center become or an institution become a center of excellence for something like this mm-hmm. and he said oh my gosh we're already working on that you should go talk to um this doctor he's one of our top cardiothoracic surgeons and so the next day this cardiothoracic surgeon shows up in my office he's like hey i didn't know that you had vascular downloads and he and he's like, and you're alive and you're healthy and you've had babies. And I'm like, yes. And so, in a very awesome, bizarre twist of events, he had already been working with folks at the Marfan Foundation to become a recommended center for Marfan syndrome. And that we were actively recruiting um, a cardiologist that is one of the um, members of the professional advisory board mm-hmm. for the Marfan Foundation. So as the summer went on, um, the a role came into development with in this program at the hospital that I already work at um, for a nurse navigator. So now I'm a nurse navigator for the Hogue Hospital Marfan Center and Related Conditions um, new program. So we are we just became. Um, a recommended center through the foundation. Mm-hmm. And I know we're on the, the VEDS um, yep. centers. <laughs> <laughs> so now, basically, my day, my regular day is taking care of patients with connective tissue disorders. And it's amazing to be that resource for other patients and help them go through this journey um, 
and navigate literally I'm a navigator for (laughs) (laughs) patients that basically from suspected um, diagnosis to confirmed diagnosis and even if we need surgery we have um, the surgery team and post-op so it's really the through the entire lifespan of the condition these conditions Um, that's amazing it's awesome yeah it's I remember talking to you when that happened place. and it was so exciting when you told me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, this is where I feel like I'm meant to be. And now we have this, the, the network and mm-hmm. all these things that we didn't have. When I say we, I mean as patients back when we were kind of figuring out this on our own, yeah. we are, we are building and, and I mean, our, my geneticist that diagnosis, she's our go-to geneticist for this, this program. And for Southern California, there has kind of been a void just because we have had programs like this, but, you know, people retire and either they've got the, the program in place, but, um, but not 100%. So now what we're working on is building like a full patient network of providers that can help manage this. So, that is so cool. Yeah, it's pretty neat. So how does that feel um, like having vets and and working with vets all day too? I know that like it's really rewarding helping people, which I totally relate to. Yes, I'm sure. Yes, you do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it is awesome um, to be that, to be a resource and it, and it makes for a completely different um, perspective with my career um, and having a fulfilling career. Um, but at the same time, it can be exhausting, and I have to really focus on balance between um, not being too emotionally, I guess, exhausted. Yeah. And, I mean, my colleagues are a huge support of me and for me and the kids and um, are helping me kind of stay in check with that to make sure I'm not overworked and not over um just, you know, I guess not, uh, where I don't have the life sucked out of me, literally, yeah. from an emotional and physical standpoint. Um, because this condition can be pretty exhausting yes. physically and emotionally. So, um, so I'm just very blessed that, I mean, I know how I need to keep myself in check, and that's harder to do because I'm <laughs> kind of more of a just go-getter and I'll relax later. And then later just doesn't happen. Um, <laughs> but I have an emo- like a amazing support system just with my husband and my family and my my colleagues at work. That's amazing. Yeah, and I think I think just connecting with other people with feds um, has been a huge huge resource for me, um, like you, and having friendships and mm-hmm. and being friends with other moms. And just talking through things and talking through this is just basically how I know I cope with all this. It's such a special network of people. Absolutely. Yeah. I just, I wouldn't, it's so weird because when I was diagnosed, I felt so alone. But then when I started meeting people and building this network, like I honestly, I wouldn't trade the experience I've had for anything. Right, exactly. It's so weird to say that because right, I know, <laughs> and, you know, and that's you know, kind of circling back to, I guess, the guilt I feel with the kids mm-hmm. and passing this down to them. You know, I look at them, and you know, I look back at all the 
you know, I quote mistakes, I think that were, were made as I, or the missed opportunities to be diagnosed earlier mm-hmm. and what decisions I would have changed as far as having children, I would never go back uh, and change what I've, what I have now. Yeah. I have an, I have these amazing kids um, that bring joy to so many, not just me and you know, they're happy and that's all we could ask for, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's funny to think, Oh, there's nothing I would change when you have these crummy situations. Yeah. Um, but it's brought such meaning to my life. Yes, exactly. And, and yeah, it's amazing. I think we can relate very closely on that. So. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with everybody. Yes, thank you so much for for doing all that you do. I wish I could hug you through the phone. (laughs) I know, I know. We always do this. (laughs) All right. Well, um, thank you, everybody, for listening. This was Meg sharing her story with Eds, and this is Katie, your host. This is a monthly podcast, so it comes out on the last Sunday of the month, and you'll get another one next month. Thank you for listening, and see you soon.